1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I'm pleased to have, uh, or to be speaking with, Maria Cristina Garcia, author of The Refugee Challenge in Post-Cold War America, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Dr. Garcia is the Howard A. Newman Professor of American Studies in the Department of History at Cornell University where she also holds a joint appointment in the Latino Studies program. She has served as president of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society, and her books include Havana, USA, Cuban Exiles and Cuban Americans in South Florida, published by UC Press in 1997, and Seeking Refuge, Central American Migration to Mexico, the United States, and Canada, which was also published by UC Press in 2006. Hello, Maria Cristina, and welcome to New Books in History.
2: Hello. Thank you for your interest in my work, David James. I really appreciate it.
1: No problem. I'm I'm thrilled to be uh, discussing your wonderful book with you. Uh, before we get there, I'm just hoping you could take a few moments and introduce yourself to our audience. Maybe say a few things about your personal and professional background.
2: Uh, sure. Happy to. Um, I'm a historian of immigration, and I have a particular interest in refugee migrations from the Americas. Um, my scholarly interest in immigration comes out of my own personal experience. I was born in Cuba, and my family immigrated to the United States in the 1960s. Um, I guess I should say we were allowed to immigrate because many of my, um, my family, like many of my compatriots, we arrived with visa waivers under a status known as humanitarian Parole. It wasn't until many years later, when I was an undergraduate student at Georgetown University studying immigration history, that I realized just how privileged our experience had been. Um, This is not to say that we didn't struggle. I, I think every immigrant and refugee who comes to the United States struggles in some way, but legal doors were open for us in ways that they were not opened for other immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. So, our, our experience was privileged in that sense. Uh, when I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, my interest in immigration history solidified. Um, at the time, uh, this was the 1980s, Latino uh, studies was still comparatively undeveloped. And, and I knew that I could best make a contribution to that field. I wanted to make a contribution to that field, by writing about immigrants from Latin America and and making their stories visible. So my first book, uh, Havana, USA, um, came out of that impulse, came out of that desire and out of that personal experience. Um, It's a story, as as the title implies, it's a history of Cuban migration to South Florida after the Castro Revolution. Um, But as I was writing that book uh, from the comfort of my apartment in Texas, a very different story was playing out along the U.S.-Mexico border. Hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and Nicaraguans were fleeing the civil wars of the 1980s. But unlike the Cubans, they were finding that their entrance to the United States was blocked. And so as I was writing my first book, I knew at that moment that I wanted my second book to look at Central American migration And I wanted to make their stories visible. I wanted to make their stories and experiences known. And so that book became Seeking Refuge. And it examines how refugee policy becomes politicized and becomes a tool of US foreign policy interests. And it uses that Central American case study as an example. And today, I I continue to research, write, and teach about immigration and refugee um, history and uh, refugee issues
1: great well thank you for that and and particularly for uh discussing some of your previous work which has been uh so important uh in in several fields um I'm, i'm wondering if we could kind of segue into talking about your book by um approaching the fact that this is a very recent history um right and in many ways it's it's i mean this is very much speaking to our contemporary moment so if you will, would you discuss what does it mean for a historian uh, to breach this topic that has been covered by social scientists and policymakers? And so essentially, I guess, maybe how does it, how does this look differently? And what is a historian's frame or lens have to add uh, to these, these conversations?
2: Well, addressing this topic, or writing about this topic as a historian has its challenges, as you know, because many of the sources that historians draw on are still aren't available. They haven't been declassified and, and uh, or they're otherwise made unavailable. Um, interviewees become uh, difficult to identify and, and are, are unwilling to go on, on record. And so many of the sources that we rely on to, to flesh out that history um, is a challenge. And so um, writing about the recent period requires you to draw on the social scientific literature but then it, it 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 forces you to examine well what sources are available that I can draw on to to tell this story, and and you you write the story however you can with the understanding that others will then follow and and build on it right so I know that this is not the definitive work on refugee and asylum policy in the post Cold War era it begins hopefully it has uh, uh, contributed to the conversation. And I know that other uh, um, historians will will follow me and build on that work and flesh it out and make it more real uh, make it more more comprehensive I should say
1: yeah well thank you for that and um, i what I appreciate as I read it and I shared with you but earlier that uh, we just read it uh, as, as a class in one of the classes I'm teaching um, is that there's there's also a sense of i think the the the, the methodology of a historian also to, you know, be interpretive and to write as a, in, a, in a narrative fashion, I think also helps to bring uh, coherence to uh, what is a very complicated and multifaceted um, uh, set of issues uh, and policies. As you covered in your introduction, there's literally been you know, thousands of articles, right, um, throughout the social sciences and books that have been written about this subject. So it really does help to have uh, even... You know, in relatively this early stage, a, a narrative and a framework and an interpretation to bring this together. I think particularly something that really situates itself well to teaching in a classroom.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you follow refugee issues, um, asylum issues, immigration issues, you, you you notice that there that there's an ideological shift underway, right? Um, I mean, I, I wanted—I want—I wanted this book to examine how policy is shifting, has been shifting since the end of the Cold War. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in policymakers and how they res- have responded uh, to different humanitarian crises after the Cold War. How political, foreign policy, and humanitarian interests have shaped refugee policy. But I was also especially interested in looking at the role of advocacy because it seems that. Now more than ever, uh, advocacy is shaping the contours of, of uh, immigration policy, refugee policy. I wanted to give particular attention to the individuals, um, the groups, the faith communities, the non-governmental organizations who have been advocating and pressuring for particular outcomes, and in many cases successful. They're, they're part of that story, right? It, it's not just a top-down history it's also very much a bottom up looking at the various actors who 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 craft uh, policy in response to particular emergencies
1: now, thank you for bringing that up and um, um, my next question will actually get to that uh, a bit more directly because I did notice that something you're very clear in in framing this study kind of through those those two approaches right that uh, the policy side is this top down view of it, right the kind of debate between um, or the tensions between different branches of government, etc., policymakers. But then you also have the advocacy stemming from below. So I, I do want to get there. I just also wanted to uh, clarify, at least for our, our, our listeners, if you could um, discuss the differences uh, and the similarities between the statuses of refugee and asylum and an asylum seeker.
2: Right. Well, a, a refugee is has a very precise definition, right? Um, We we tend to use the word refugee quite freely. Uh, um, Journalists do, uh, faith communities, um, in casual conversation, we use the term refugee, and there seems to be a general understanding of what that means, of of what it means to be a refugee. But legally, um, a refugee is defined in a very precise uh, way. And it's the 1980 Refugee Act that has offered our legal definition of who a refugee is. And the 1980 Refugee Act defines a refugee as a person outside of their country of of origin or of habitual residence, who has a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. uh, a refugee has to be, out, uh, as I said, outside of their, their country of origin or of habitual residence. They uh, have to be able to demonstrate that they could not find safety or security simply by moving to another part of, of his or her country. They have to demonstrate that there there doesn't seem to be any reasonable chance of returning home in the immediate future. Um, and that they haven't, and they have to be able to demonstrate that they they have not committed a crime, that that they have not engaged in any kind of activity that would make them a threat to uh, to the security of of their new country, say the United States. If they can do all of that, they might have a reasonable chance of securing refugee status. But today, less than one percent of refugees worldwide are ever resettled in a third country like the United States it's very, very difficult to secure a refugee status. So a refugee is identified abroad for resettlement in a third country like the United States. An asylum seeker is a refugee, but what distinguishes an asylum seeker is the place where he or she sequ- uh, requests protection. Um, an asylum seeker requests protection at a port of entry, say the U.S.-Mexico or the U.S.-Canada border, They might ask for protection at a U.S. embassy or consulate. They might ask for protection on a U.S. Coast Guard vessel. It has to be U.S. territory. Um, But the burden of proof is always much higher for an asylum seeker um, because there is this presumption that asylum seekers intend to deceive um, the bureaucracy, the refugee bureaucracy. So the burden of proof is always much higher for an asylum seeker, and it's much more difficult um, to secure asylum at a port of entry, or you know through through the bureaucracy, I should say
1: right, no, and, and thank you for that. and I, it's the kind of so there's that issue of where they're applying from, right is is kind of a key distinguisher, right and I, I guess I've heard the phrase that uh, it's something in terms like that all refugees. Or at one point an asylum seeker, but it's not the same the other way around, right? Because asylum seekers are, are trying to get the refugee status, but they're also applying in a different place, right? Usually, as, you, as you're mentioning, right, at that place of a port of entry, or they've already kind of made it to that destination country, and that's where they're applying, right?
2: Absolutely. And complicating it even further, at least today, um, asylum seekers uh, – uh, Either follow what is known as the affirmative channel or the defensive channel. Uh, there are separate tracks in the uh, in the uh, um, in the asylum bureaucracy. So let's say that an asylum seeker arrives on U.S. territory and um, has a period of time to go to uh, to the office, a USCIS office, uh, United States Customs and um, and Immigration Services. Uh, they can go to an asylum office and request asylum. And that is known as an affirmative claim for asylum. And, uh, and that case is uh, evaluated by asylum officers who are trained to evaluate those particular cases. Um, another way that you could request asylum is through the defensive track. Let's say that you enter the country, the United States, without authorization. You're here for a period of time and you are apprehended, say, at a routine traffic stop, and at that moment in time, you decide to request asylum. Um, that sets you on the defensive track for asylum-seeking, uh, and your case is heard um, through, through a different channel, um, usually the immigration courts. And it's in the defensive track that uh, it, it's particularly hard to secure a successful outcome because again the the perception is that the asylum seeker who has been apprehended and at that moment requests asylum is simply requesting asylum as a way to delay deportation and so the burden of proof of, is even higher and on the defensive track
1: right and as you're explaining that i mean that's already at least conjuring in my mind you know the the issue that um that affirmative or defensive kind of position is really matters to, to the, the place of origin uh, in many ways for this migrant, right? I mean, I'm automatically thinking of, you know, Central American migrants right now in the United States that are caught under those similar circumstances to where is it actually the case that, um, you know, Central American migrants are uh, finding more defensive claims as opposed to affirmative claims?
2: Uh, that seems to be... Um... Uh, what's happening, or at least uh, a, 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 at this particular uh, historical moment? Um, I, I should say, you know, actually, your your readers, uh, your uh, your listeners, might be interested to know that that asylum uh, became a particular challenge beginning in the nineteen eighties, in response to the growing number of Central Americans and Haitians who were requesting asylum um uh at a US port of entry. You know, before the 1980s, we we also had asylum seekers, but they were comparatively fewer. And and those who received the most media attention seemed to be the high-profile defectors from the Soviet Union uh, or from the Eastern Bloc, say um Romanian gymnasts or or uh, Russian ballerinas or um you know uh, Czech tennis players, right? Um and and so you know these high profile defections tended to attract a great deal of of attention especially during the cold war but beginning in the 1980s uh, the number of asylum seekers skyrocketed in large part because of of the number of people of people who were fleeing Haiti in response to the despotic Duvalier regime but also because of the civil wars in Central America so we saw a growing number of people uh, crossing over lands, uh, going to Mexico, Canada, the United States in search of refuge. And so since the 1980s, we've had um, uh, more and more asylum seekers every single year. And that has led to the perception that, um, not, that not everyone who's coming from Central America has a bona fide claim that there are simply economic migrants in search of, of protection uh, uh, or in search of, of opportunity. Um, but um, but the migration from Central America uh, is and always has been multi-causal. It's economic. It's political. It's climate-driven. It's um, a number of factors have have driven people to leave the region to come to the United States.
1: Indeed, you know, and those two case studies that you you just mentioned with you know with Haiti and, and Central Americans are particularly right. They pose a sharp contrast to uh, the you know, your, your family's own personal experience, right, and that of uh, Cuban refugees, uh, uh, particularly during not only just the, you know, the, the early Cold War period, but even into the 70s and 80s as, as this these policies were shifting and it was becoming more aware, at least to the American public, um, that there was a concern over the, the numbers of refugees that were coming, as well as, you know, this is, this is also intersecting with uh, concerns over undocumented migration at that time. So, in order for me to frame this into a question, I was if, what I think this uh, does well, uh, can help us perhaps discuss is the kind of tension um, between uh, or confusion between, you know, the branches of government, you know, that are responsible for um, asylum and, re- and refugee policy. And can you, can you explain that a bit? Um, I think that's, that's where you use these examples. And I think that's in your first chapter of essentially the debate, you know, and the tension that goes on, particularly between Congress and the White House, um, you know, in the early, uh, you know, post-Cold War years?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, before I talk about the uh, post-Cold War years, it, I think it would be important to explain what's happening during the Cold War, uh, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, there is an ideological shift, and that ideological shift is shaping how refugee policy is playing out. Um, so during the Cold War, Um, Anti-communism was the lens through which policymakers interpreted who was worthy of admission to the United States as a refugee or as an asylum seeker. And not surprisingly, the vast majority of people um, who were admitted as refugees came from the Soviet Union, Vietnam, Cuba, and other communist countries. Coming from a communist country didn't guarantee that you would be admitted to the United States, but it did maximize your chances because Those who made decisions on the ground regarding admission operated on the premise that communist countries were inherently oppressive. Um, Even after Congress passed the 1980 Refugee Act, which adopted the United Nations definition of refugee and tried to strip policy of its ideological bias, the United States um, continued to prioritize those fleeing from communist countries. Um, After the Cold War, though, Uh, it seemed that refugee policy was moving in a more expansive direction. Um, We began to admit, you know, once we moved away from that communist ideological bias uh, or anti-communist ideological bias, we tended to move in, in a more expansive direction. We began admitting people who would never have been considered during the Cold War, um, we started admitting people who were fleeing gender and sex-based discrimination. For example, we started admitting uh, victims of trafficking. People who were fleeing criminal violence. Again, they had to prove a well-founded fear of persecution. It wasn't easy to secure protection, but they—they were—we um, were admitting uh, more people from many more different, uh, uh, many more countries, uh, under uh, for many uh, more reasons. And and also our refugee quota was increasing, uh, doubling and tripling in size. Mm. That change, though, um, began to change after 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, anti-terrorism became the new lens through which we interpreted who was worthy of admission to the United States. There, Since 9-11, there has been this growing fear of sponsoring people from countries that are believed to be incubators of terrorism, um, and we've seen that the quota, the refugee quota has begun to decrease um, and the obstacles to receive refugee status or asylum be, have become even more uh, considerable, right? Um, so uh, so in, 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 in some, you know for a brief period after 1989, after the end of the Cold War, we see this this expansion and the way that we, um, define refugee, and the people who are being considered, and our and our refugee quota is expanding, but then after nine eleven, it begins to contract again uh, because of this fear of sponsoring people from uh, from terrorist incubating com- uh, countries.
1: Right, and and because of that increasing fear, um, again, how does that? Actually, you know, create a a type of tension or uncertainty, Uh, um, I guess my question is in regards to which branch of government, you know, should be handling uh, refugee and and asylum policy, because both have, you know, taken their, have made efforts, you know, to to put their imprint on it, right? But uh, the Constitution isn't quite so clear, right? As to it's it's not like Article Two says, right, that it's the purview of the executive branch, right, to handle refugee policy, right? It doesn't work quite like that. So, um, can you get into that that tension that we we've seen rise between Congress and and the executive branch?
2: Right. Well, one of the reasons um, why Congress passed the 1980 Refugee Refugee Act is that they wanted to have greater control over refugee policy um, uh, before nineteen eighty many people were being admitted as um, as humanitarian parolees uh, another way of defining refugees and and this was based on executive authority um, because of the nineteen fifty two immigration act, the executive branch the um, had the authority to allow people into the United States outside of immigration quota if it was deemed in the national interest. By 1980, Congress had had enough of this because hundreds of thousands of people were being admitted um, for reasons that didn't seem all that clear um, to members of Congress. And so the 1980 Refugee Act was this attempt to exert greater control over uh, refugee admissions. And so since 1980, since the Refugee Act, every year, the White House, the executive branch, in consultation with Congress, decides how many uh, refugees will be admitted each year, each fiscal year. And they assign uh, kind of percentages of that quota to different regions of the world, depending on um, the areas that they feel are especially vulnerable, uh, where they want to admit uh, the, the regions of the world that they want to target for refugee admissions. So, um, so there is this this working together between the executive branch and Congress in terms of refugee policy, or at least there has been until until fairly recently. Um, in issues of of asylum, um, as I mentioned, there are these two tracks within the asylum uh, bureaucracy: the the affirmative and the defensive track. If you're on the defensive track, that's really where the judiciary and enters in because it's it's the administrative courts. Um, that are making determinations about who will be um, admitted as as an asylee into the United States. Um, And that that system uh, is is quite precarious uh, for the person who is an asylum seeker, because what we know now from studying the asylum bureaucracy as it has evolved in the post-Cold War period um, we know now just how difficult it is to receive asylum. We know that if you have legal representation, for example, your chances of receiving asylum increase dramatically, um, as much as as fifty to eighty percent. Your um, uh, your chances improve, but the vast majority of asylum seekers today do not have legal representation because, unlike in criminal courts, where you are guaranteed um, some type of legal representation in the immigration courts, we are not required to provide legal representation or even translators for that matter. So most asylum seekers navigate the asylum bureaucracy on their own. If they have legal representation, it's because it's been offered to them by a, um, on a pro bono basis by a law firm or uh, has been offered to them because, uh, uh, thanks to the efforts of a non-governmental organization, that has provided them with some type of, of of translation service or or legal representation. But the vast majority of asylum seekers do not have um, access to uh, to legal representation. We also know that your chances of receiving receiving asylum vary on where you file your claim. Um, you can have two identical cases, the circumstances of each case almost identical, and have each case heard in different courts across the country and have completely different outcomes. So decisions are not standardized um, necessarily, except in in a few examples, um, which makes having legal representation all the more important.
1: And on that point, uh, with the You know the asylum, asylum bureaucracy that's particularly run through the the court system. Is this because you know the or I know it's not one thing, but it's part of the reason. This because of this effort to define these persecuted social groups and that that's actually not clearly defined in legislation or you know like in a you know aside from like the 1948 right uh, UN declaration on refugees right and, and genocide and and the 1980 Refugee Act. I mean outside of those things we don't. Is it because there's there's not a a really clear definition or test as to what constitutes a member of this group, and thereby it's left to just play this out in the courts on a on a kind of case by case basis to determine, in this scenario, does this person qualify be because they're able to associate with this group, uh, or not? Is
2: right. Uh, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, it, it's in, the courts have been fleshing out what it means to be um, a member of a particular social group, for example. You know, it, it becomes easier uh, for a court to understand persecution on account of race, religion, nationality. But when you get to membership in a particular social group, that's when it gets tricky, you know. And, and so there have been a series of of court decisions over the years that have tried to Define what it means to be a member of a particular social group, uh, and it it, it involves um, uh, visibility, for example, um, uh, and, and so it, it's those court cases that have helped to um, to standardize our understanding of what it means to be persecuted, right? Um, but but. What makes it especially tricky for uh, for the courts um, in trying to uh, understand the or or make sense of the legitimacy of a particular claim is that um, that reasons for migration are always multi-causal, as I mentioned uh, earlier. I mean, we have this tendency in the United States to want to to divide people into discrete categories. We, you know, we, we say this person is a political refugee, this person is an economic migrant, this one is a climate refugee. But, but it, it's never that discrete. It's never that easy. Migration is always multi-causal, and and trying to assess the legitimacy of a person's um, claim for asylum is always. Um, Is always very, very difficult. And that's why legal representation, having someone there to advocate for you, to help you find the words through which to articulate your experience, becomes all the more important. And and now it's because of the backlog in the system. Uh, um, in, In some areas of the country, the backlog, the wait to have your case even heard in a court can be as long as three years. I mean, the, the the anxiety, the stress is overwhelming for the individual asylum seeker, especially since since 9/11, we we tend to um, hold people in detention if they cannot prove their identity, if they don't have family in the United States or friends who can vouch for them, who can attest to um, to their safety, right? Who can provide for their safety and for their maintenance? We tend to detain. Um, and, and err on the side of, of caution, so to speak, um, it, it's inhumane. Of course, you can imagine holding somebody indefinitely to, while they await their, uh, their asylum case, um, especially at this particular moment, is, is, is inhumane. And, and we have to, as a society, uh, examine and explore more humane ways of, of allowing asylum seekers to remain in the country while they await their time in court.
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, and we were on since we're on the the subject of of this backlog. Uh, can you explain that a bit more? Why is there such a you know deep backlog? And, and I know it's not necessarily um, just a a an, an issue with this current administration. It's been right a, an issue for decades. Of this backlog has just grown and grown and grown. Yes. Why is that?
2: Yes. Um, the the growing number of asylum seekers. Um, that's part. Uh, we also don't have uh, the bureaucracy to handle them. We have um, we have immigration judges, and there's enormous pressure on them to hear um, asylum cases. And some uh, uh, in some courts, the pressure is to to hear fifty to one hundred cases per day. as you can imagine, in just one day, you can't really um, make a determination, um, an accurate determination when you're under so much pressure. To hear so many cases in a given day, in order to address the backlog, there's just no way that you can give anybody a a, a truly fair hearing. It seems to me. I, I know there are, are many who would disagree with me, but it seems to me that if you're working under that amount of pressure, there's just no way that you can give somebody a, a truly fair hearing, right? Um, and so, so, so it's all of those those factors, right? Um, we uh, uh, I, I find it uh, puzzling that that Americans don't want big government, right? They don't want big bureaucracy. But in order to have a fair and humane asylum system, you have to have a large bureaucracy. You have to have the judges. You have to have the, the legal counsel that allow people to to make a claim for asylum and have that claim evaluated um, and, um and so reconciling those two tensions uh, has always been difficult and and even more so now
1: thank you for ex- explaining that it's it's definitely something that my uh, students and I as we we were speaking of your book there was something that just baffled their minds and they were they're really trying to struggle to understand what that is like and what are you know what are these myriad causes to create as you mentioned like a three year backlog and then i mean that's the backlog itself but then also the series of um, you know, legislation that is, you know, in past, in recent decades that has led to, as what you mentioned earlier, essentially what is, you know, indefinite detention for people that are, are seeking protection, but that, you know, have been, you know, convicted of no crime, have done nothing wrong and, and can spend up to, you know, at, at the minimum months, if not years, right, in a detention facility, uh, which as we know are increasingly becoming you know privately run which has its own issues and problems on that side but but just um you know that that issue can can you speak of so what uh, what um you know types of legislation has created that shift to where um not just the backlog but to where we're we're detaining these people literally putting them in jail more and more
2: um I began to see that shift, and, and many others have, have noticed this shift too, after um, the 1993 World Tr- uh, Trade Center bomb- bombing. So, so, before 9 11, there was this other major terrorist attack in 1993. Um, and concerns about uh, the role immigration played in facilitating that terrorist attack led to passage of the 1996 illegal immigration. Uh, an Immigrant Responsibility Act, IRA, IRA, right? And um, IRA, IRA, this 1996 law, this mammoth uh, piece of legislation um, uh, covered all kinds of uh, immigration-related issues. But within that law, uh, there was also a discussion of asylum and uh, a discussion of um, deterrence um, uh, methods that should be followed in order to discourage people from coming to the United States without authorization and and discouraging them from filing um a frivolous uh, asylum claim right so so since 1996 it's become increasingly difficult to request asylum and so uh we begin to see an uptick in the number of of detention you know detainees immigrant detainees after 1996 uh, we begin to see an increase in, um, in uh, border enforcement and the um, increased use of technologies, different technologies in border enforcement since 1996. These kind of police um, operations and increasing militarization along the borders um, since 1996. And, and as you mentioned um, earlier, We also begin to see an increasing privatization of immigration detention after 1996. Um, So up until the Trump administration, um, we begin to see that individuals who are coming into the United States um, and apprehended, who can't prove their identity, who don't have um, family or friends in the United States who are willing to vouch for them, are detained while they wait, they're here, they're their, their hearing in, in an asylum court or in an immigration court. Um, but since the Trump administration, as you know, um, even those who can prove their identity, even those who do have family in the United States, are also increasingly detained. And this admi- administration in particular, has adopted other deterrence mechanisms, uh, including the sending back to, Me- uh, to Mexico um, strategy to, um, discourage people from coming to the United States. So forcing them to return to Mexico to wait for their asylum hearing over there, the separation of children from families of fam- uh, the separation of families in general, that too has become another form of, of deterrence. Um, and, and so it's become increasingly draconian since 2017.
1: Yes. Thank you for that. Um, uh, quite a bit of what we've already talked about has connected to I think one of the, the key themes that you pull out you know in the beginning that influences um, post war Cold War post Cold War refugee policy, which is that aspect of fear fear of both you know on behalf of policymakers and their constituents over uh, economic, political, cultural developments right and trying to you know make judgments, um, I- increasingly as, uh, you know, in, in the era of the, from the mid 19, from the 1990s forward of concerns over terrorism. So it's, it's effect on all those different things. So we've, I think we've covered a bit of that, uh, again, a, another wonderful part of this book is, is the consistent theme that you, you explain of, of advocacy and the role of humanitarian uh, the humanitarian community broadly, uh, right, and the influence they've been able to have, right? Because uh, from the top down, we've been talking about, which can seem to some of us, right, a, a very kind of, a, you know, oppressive and, and depressing system, right, that has uh, continued to limit and constrain, uh, it appears, right, the the movement of people and the ability of people that are seeking refuge uh, and asylum, um, which is quite shocking, right, uh, I think, in the post uh, World War II era where, you know, those chants of never again were we going to allow, right, uh, something like the Holocaust to happen, and yet, you know, we see that happening. That's a, happened throughout the 1990s in, in several periods, and you discussed those case studies. So there's there's a lot of those fears and concerns, but can you speak more to this issue of the importance of, again, the humanitarian communities and how they've been able to provide that ground up swell, uh, right, on behalf of of people seeking these protections?
2: Oh, um, well, thank you for that question. Yes, uh, humanitarian aid workers, human rights activists, journalists, clergy, scholars, lawyers, judges, um, all of these individuals, faith communities have have played a role in advocacy um, during the Cold War and and most certainly after the Cold War. And it's it's individuals of conscience um, who... Who remind remind us? They continually remind us of the values that we claim to believe in, right? As a society, um, the United States claims to be founded on particular principles, and we claim to we um to believe in in particular values. But oftentimes we lose sight of those values, and it's these um, individuals and groups and faith communities and and lawyers and judges and journalists who who continually force us to recommit ourselves to those values. They're, they are the ones who remind us of, of who we are or who we claim to be as a nation. And so through their advocacy, through their writings, through their, um, uh, you know, op-eds, uh, you know, they they continually remind us of of who we are as a people or, or who we claim to be. And, and so, um, and we see that they often have an impact in the shaping of, of policy. They they hope um, through their through their activities, through their writings, they they help to pry open the door to the United States, right? They they force administrations from you know from the Reagan administration on. You you begin to see how 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 these individuals and, and communities are, are 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 shaping the discussion about who a re, who or what a refugee is. Or what an asylum seeker is. And it, are, they're putting pressure subtly and sometimes quite forcefully on, on politicians, on the people who craft policy, on the people who interpret policy on the ground. They're putting pressure on them, they're advocating, um, and, and they're encouraging uh, an opening of the door to accommodate particular groups that they feel that we have forgotten. Um, So an example uh, from the recent past, for example, has to do with the Iraqi and Afghan translators, right? Um, When we uh, went to war uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, when we increased our military presence in that region of the world, we depended on so many translators and and other support personnel from that country uh, to follow that mission, rightly or wrongly. But then Later on, we we lost sight of them, right? And and it was Americans of conscience who reminded policymakers that we had an obligation to assist those people who had put their lives on the line and help them to find um, some type of, of accommodation here in the United States because they were in danger. Their lives were in danger. Their families were in danger. And so, through special immigrant visas, through refugee status, through different other types of legal accommodations, as I spell out in chapter three, we were able to offer uh, admission, um, uh, admittance to, to Iraqi and, and, and Afghan tra- uh, translators and other support personnel to come to the United States. And again, it that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I don't think without. Um, people of conscience stepping up and saying, well, wait a minute, we, we have an obligation here. You know, we're, we're forgetting that we have an obligation here and we have to, to work to, to, to allow people to come in.
1: Yeah. If I recall correctly, I think most of the examples that, that you discuss in regards to um, individuals or groups, right. Making successful claims uh, and, and having a positive outcome uh, in this you know, process of seeking uh, refugee protections uh, or even asylum that, uh, you know, they had some type of advocacy group or, uh, you know, on working on their behalf, right. And that is actually vital. I mean, as in kind of like that asylum process that those peoples that don't, don't kind of have that, that, that type of advocacy are the ones that are not going to get connected, right. With an attorney that are not going to get representation uh, through this vast bureaucracy, which is so critical as you've already discussed, uh, right. To having a you know, any chance of having a a positive outcome. Right. Yes, absolutely. I'm also wondering, um, I know our time's running short, so I'm going to try to pull these, I guess it's one to two questions together, but uh, I guess the bigger question is, do you kind of see this era that you write about as representing a a type of dilemma, uh, you know, for liberal democracies uh, in the post-Cold War era? That is, again, I'm referring back to you know, the 1948 convention on genocide and, you know, that, that's still that memory. Everyone's still taught, at least in the United States, I think, in several other Western liberal democracies about, um, uh, you know, the Holocaust. Uh, and yet we see so often how, um, throughout the case studies that you discuss, uh, how that, that's failed. You know, at least it's, it's nation states themselves, due to their internal politics, have failed to step in. Right and prevent genocide, like like the you know the cases in uh, Bosnia, or Rwanda, or Kosovo, which you you discuss, right? Or even the Iraq War, right? Um, uh, the aftermath of the first Gulf War, right? Uh, and uh, the, the the place of the Kurds, right? And and so it just uh, I'm just wondering if it, does this say something deeper kind of uh, um, about a, a failure of you know these these liberal uh, nation states to Kind of uphold these humanitarian values.
2: Yes, I well, you could see it as as a failure. I I think um, I think part of the problem is that we have been responding on on an ad hoc basis, right? Um, uh, instead of of working together regionally. Um, I I think uh, you know after the Cold War, there was a greater realization that. Um, that refugees and, and displaced persons were, were increasing in size, um, that, uh, that 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 this was going to be continue to be a challenge of the future, and that in order to address this challenge, we needed to work together to share the burden. Um, to recognize that we have an international responsibility that we couldn't go go it alone individually, nation by nation on an ad hoc basis, that we needed to work together um, as as regions as 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 members of an international community to address particular humanitarian crises, right? Um, unfortunately, um, while we do see examples of of that burden sharing, and we do see examples of Countries and particular regions coming together to address um, particular uh, crises, humanitarian crises that have emerged. Um, it, it hasn't been as as developed or as uh, as one would hope, right? And and moving forward, because this is is going to be uh, continue to be a challenge in the future. There needs to be a, a greater recognition, you know, that we need to work together to address. Um, to dr- uh, address humanitarian crises the crises of the future um, so yes it, it is a failure um, I and i am particularly concerned that at, at this particular moment um, the uh, the impulse is to militarize borders to strengthen them um, to make it even more and more difficult for people to find refuge in um, in, a, in another country. And, and it's really, um, it's quite scary. I don't know ultimately what's, what's going to happen. I'm hoping that this is, is a temporary de- development and that um, in the future that we will come together and, and address, uh, uh, address this challenge because we have more refugees and displaced persons than ever before. And right now, as I mentioned earlier, less than 1% of refugees are ever resettled in the top 10 resettlement nations of which the United States is one. The vast majority of refugees worldwide um, are usually in neighboring countries, uh, countries that border areas of crisis, and refugee camps are growing in size. There are some refugee camps that are larger in size than U.S. cities. And that situation is untenable, right? It it, it can't exist forever. Um, we have refugee camps where we have multiple generations of families that have lived and have grown up in these refugee camps, and they don't have a nation, a country to cl- to call their own, right? And they have limited opportunities for education, for earning a livelihood, for medical care. And they live in refugee camps. um, uh, that are operated by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and other um, non-governmental organizations, and they live in these camps. That, um, thanks to the generosity of, of countries that border areas of crisis, they have allowed those those camps to operate and to exist. But at any time, um, the UNHCR knows that at any moment those countries may tire of those camps and want them shut down and expel the people, the hundreds of thousands of people who live in those camps, and where will they go? Um, And so these challenges, um, you know, the number of refugees and displaced persons will continue to grow in in the years to come. And so now more than ever, um, there needs to be uh, a greater cooperation, you know, within the international community to try to um uh, address the 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 conditions that create displaced persons in the first place but then if once people become displaced to address their needs and provide them with the protection that they need in order to survive
1: yeah thank you for that i think um you know that's such a you know it key point um uh, you know that the, the need to come together and it makes me think of i think Currently, what we're, explain, we're experiencing as not only a, a nation, but, you know, a global community uh, with the current COVID-19 you know, pandemic, it's uh, it's something I've been thinking a lot about and, and hoping, I mean, I think we've seen the ills of nationalism, right, and how uh, that type of isolationist thinking actually is, is very, very um, uh, harmful, to say the least, right, in the response to uh, the rise of the coronavirus and and, and covid 19 uh and i guess my point is what i'm what i'm hoping is that this will help us all to understand just how much really interconnected we are right And that that these pro these problems are global pro problems and that's what i try to share with my students that you know migration is not a national thing this is not you know our own narrative of american exceptionalism makes us think that you know this is the the country the first choice country that that migrants and refugees are Always, it's at the top of their list, and but you know these are issues as you you mentioned here, the growth of the refugee uh, population and, and their claims to Western countries. I mean, particularly this is a movement right from the global south to the global north, right? And so this is a global problem that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, as a global community, as I'm drawing this parallel to, I think. Hopefully, we're seeing now, right, that this issue of pandemics—we can no longer view that's what's happening on the one side of the world as not affecting us. It, it's going to affect us, right? And it already is. Um, I guess that's that's one of my hopes that I think this this moment can help us all to understand, and that this applies to things just like these these movements of refugees and um, that are caught in these these just terrible circumstances.
2: Absolutely. And, and, and now, uh, certainly, as, as we're facing um, accelerated climate change, uh-huh. um, migration, um, both internal and, and across international borders, will become increasingly um, larger, right? I mean, the forecasts for the next 50 years are incredibly sobering. Um, and so we have to come together as an, interna- uh, as an international community. Um, to mitigate the effects of climate change, um, but then also to help populations become resilient or to adapt to the effects of climate change so that they don't have to migrate internally or across international borders. And that that's a response that can't be national. It has to be right. an international response. We all have to come together. So, so unfortunately, at this moment in time, you know, we're... Countries are isolating, they're militarizing, they're strengthening their, their borders, and yet that's the exact opposite of what we need to do. We need to be engaging, we need to be coming together to address these, these challenges that that we all face, right? It's not just one country, it's, it, we're all facing uh, these existential crises. You mentioned COVID-19, but it's most certainly climate change, we have to come together.
1: Certainly, certainly. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, I think that's a great place to, uh, I think, wrap up talking about your book, but I did want to give you an opportunity before we end uh, to perhaps share on uh, what you're currently working on. This book itself was published in 2017. Um, Do you have other, uh, I know you have several projects uh, going on, but uh, would you like to share anything or make us aware of of things that you have working, that you're working on now?
2: Thanks for asking. Um, Yes, I'm actually just finishing a book on climate-driven migration. Um, It's it's my my, my new book. Um, You know, one of the things that I and I'm I'm looking particularly at at the Americas. um, I'm looking at at uh, climate-driven migration from the Americas during this period of accelerated climate change. I mean, one of the things that I noticed when I was writing the Refugee Challenge is that many of the refugees and the asylum seekers that I was looking at, that I was studying, were initially displaced by an extreme weather event of some sort or, or some type of environmental degradation. They, that uh, environmental disruption forced them to move internally first within their own countries, but then eventually they were forced to cross international borders for other reasons, right? But by the time they reached the United States, they were categorized as either political refugees or environment, uh, or or economic migrants, but the original source of their displacement was environmental, but it got lost in the whole conversation of of you know political versus economic, right? And so that realization has led me to this new project. I am I'm, I'm examining uh, in, uh, the environmental origins of of migration, right? Uh, the climate change driven. Um, factors that are, are forcing people um, to migrate. Um, now, having said that, you know, one of the challenges in looking at climate-driven migration is that it's, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, migration is always multi-causal. It's at once uh, political, economic, and now increasingly environmental. It's hard to tease out one, one primary factor for migration. Um, what, what we do know at this moment for people uh, who are displaced for environmental reasons is that they don't have any type of legal protections worldwide. Now, when you look at, at, at our definition of refugee, for example, right now, uh, as I mentioned, you have to uh, prove a, a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Nowhere in that definition do you see climate or the environment. Right. So it's ver- it's impossible to receive protection from the United States as a refugee for environmental reasons. Right. So um, if you are coming from Central America, for example, today, a region of the world which is hit hard by hurricanes on two coasts, by drought, by volcanic eruptions, by earthquake. And if you are forced to move internally before you move um, uh, across borders to another country, um, there's no way that you can receive refugee protection for environmental reasons. You have to demonstrate that you were politically persecuted in some way, right? Or else you will not gain any kind of protection from the United States. Right now, here in the US, the only status that we have to address environmental migration is a status known as Temporary Protected Status. We have uh, since 1990, since the 1990 Immigration Act, we have on the books this status called TPS, which allows the executive branch to offer temporary protection um, to a group of people uh, if they can't return home for because of a political or an environmental disruption. But the catch is that you have to already be in the United States in order to receive that protection. You have to already be here as a student, as a worker, uh, as a tourist. And if while you're here, um, an environmental disruption occurs in your country and you can't return home, then you might be eligible for TPS status. But as the name of that status implies, it's temporary. Right? It's It's only for a period of time and then you um, uh, the State Department evaluates when it's safe for you to return home. So we we don't have anything on the books here in the United States uh, or anywhere else around the world for that matter, any any type of protection specifically for people who have been displaced for environmental reasons. Um, I know that in New Zealand there has been conversation about creating, a special visa for climate refugees, um, about 100 people per year. They're the first nation to really even engage in this kind of of conversation. Um, I know that the countries that are members of the uh, African Union have long recognized that um, the environment can be a source of displacement that should be taken into account um, for refugee protection. Um, but there needs to be a, a, a greater guidance from the United Nations, um, and there needs to be um, a, a greater understanding that this is a challenge of the future and something that the nations, the international community, will have to address in order to uh, offer protection uh, to people who lose their homes um, and and are in, in search of, of of refuge.
1: Yes, thank you for I mean God, discussing that. It makes me think of. Yeah, it was actually another question I was going to ask, but failed to. It is essentially, you know, the the kind of inadequacy of our current definition of of refugees uh, and whether that should be redefined. I mean, it seems like not only should that be redefined to include, right, uh, not only an additional category uh, for um, environmental conditions and environmental, right, uh, refugees, particularly suffering from climate change, but also a, a definition that understands the multi-causal nature, as you've been bringing up over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where we're not forced to right? identify a refugee with one category, right? That's kind of makes it all or nothing game for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you're right. And, and yet, um, I know that there is some resistance on the part of the United Nations to ex- make the definition too expansive, because of, uh, the fear of of officials at the UN is or the UNHCR is that if you broaden the definition too much, that it will weaken the protections for those individuals who are fleeing, you know, politically based persecution, for example, right? That that the term will be so expansive that it will be rendered meaningless, right? Um, Instead, what the UN um, has tried to do is to offer guidelines to nations on the rights of migrants and the responsibilities of nations. Um, in in climate disruptions, right? But um, but they're just that they're guidelines. There there isn't any obligation. Uh, it 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 just basically tells nations what they should do, what they should take into account. Um, uh, and, and so there are many in the humanitarian and the human rights community who who are hoping that the UNHCR will provide more concrete. Um, Uh, You know, a a convention of some sort that specifically addresses the responsibilities of nation um, to climate driven migration, because it is increasingly a challenge Um, will become even more so in the future. Um, Even here in the United States, we already have our own um, climate refugees, people who have been forced to move and will have to be relocated because of various environmental conditions.
1: Right. Certainly. Well, Maria Cristina, thank you so much uh, for coming uh, on to New Books in History and taking the time uh, to discuss your wonderful scholarship. I I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you, David James. I I appreciate your interest in my work and, and thank you for spending time with me.